The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Some of you know we've been, I've been talking about the three characteristics now since January, a real central teaching in the Buddha's teachings, and it's the Buddha's way of talking about, you know, we go from, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, our idea of what's happening, our interpretation of what's happening, and then with some training in awareness, we start to be able to go beyond that interpretation, not our mind not governed or dependent on that interpretation, and we start to see the great diversity of our sense experience, the texture of touch, hardness, softness, smoothness, roughness, that kind of thing, temperature, and the activity of mind as a natural phenomenon, sound as sound and sight as sight, not the interpretation. Like you can even play a little bit right now with your visual experience, for those of you who can see, right? How quickly the mind goes to its interpretation of what it's seen. But we can be in just the simplicity and immediacy of shape and color, form, right? So we call that the specific characteristics of the moment. So we have our interpretation, we have the specific characteristics, and then we have these underlying or universal characteristics that the Buddha talks about. And we're learning to wake up or see these because it naturally, organically leads to the heart letting go. Nobody lets go. That would be a misunderstanding of the Buddhist teachings that, call darn it, I gotta let go. And why don't I let go? Why does Billy let go and I can't let go? But letting go happens when the supporting causes are there. And when the supporting causes aren't there, then grasping happens. That's what we're familiar with. Attachment, identification, clinging, pushed around by our liking and our disliking of experience. And the letting go happens when the supporting causes. And according to the Buddha, or the Buddhist teachings, when the mind, when the heart, when wisdom, let's say, sees things as they are, sees the changing nature, the unsatisfactory nature, and the impersonal nature. Those are the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, are the Pali words, so the changing, ephemeral, the unsatisfying, and the impersonal nature of any phenomena, a thought, an emotion, a sight, a sound, a touch, a taste, a smell, And this is not a judgment, this is just a natural scene when we develop the sensitivity. So we're not so caught in our interpretation, not so spellbound by the specific characteristics and the diversity of just the sights and sounds and touches and thoughts. Then we see that all phenomena, all experience, has this underlying nature of being in motion, changing, ephemeral. It never becomes a thing, experience. We think experience is a thing, but that's because of our habit of interpreting it as a thing. But real experience is ephemeral. It's coming and going, 
and you know when something's coming and going, it's never really here, right? Because even when it's here, it's on its way out. And that's true with sound. It's true with thought. It's true with sight. It's true with sensation. Even you know, it seems like real solid chronic pain is sort of proof that what the Buddha says is wrong. Because you know, when we have an ache, even an emotional pain, it has the appearance of solidity. But a lot of that appearance of solidity comes from our resistance, like, oh, my heart hurts or my leg hurts. And that creates this superficial appearance, like there is this edifice of pain and it's mine and I don't like it and I want it to go away. And it seems, it appears like it's not moving. It's like, this is a dead weight. I Don't tell me this is moving, you know. It's been this way. But it's interesting, when we have enough, it takes a lot of faith to be a lot of faith and stability of present moment awareness. We can't always do it, in other words. But when we can, with these bigger places of pain in our lives, we'll see that what appears initially as a solid edifice, this is my pain, it hurts, and I don't like it, and it's real in that substantial, meaningful sense and we realize it's not what it appears to be. And some of you have done this with pain in your life. In some ways, this is a classic definition of a good meditation set, you know, where you sit and initially it's fine, and then something arises, maybe 10, 15 minutes into the sit, some physical pain or discomfort, or you're tormented by restlessness, or you're tormented by sleepiness, or some ancient pain has gotten regurgitated, some painful memory, right? And there, and then as that evolves and your mind sees it and reacts to it, you can get in a real tangle, right? Things feel really tight and substantially real. This is happening to me. It's not okay. And then if you don't give up, if you just hang in there and practice with it, well, what is this? Well, it's this experience being known. And you might break it down and be aware, be intimate with little pieces of it. You might orbit it at some safe distance. You might do the touch and go where you just really feel it deeply and then turn away from it and notice hearing is like this or seeing is like this, right? You change what you're aware of until you build enough confidence that in moments you really see that that edifice is more insubstantial than I imagine more about flow than it is about some permanence. More empty of me, of mine, than I thought. It seemed like a real problem for me, but there are moments, even with physical pain, we can't always sustain those moments, but there are moments in it, they're real uh, conducive for confidence and faith, where we realize, Oh, that pain isn't a problem. Now, I'll give you an example, which, you know, this isn't the ideal example, but it, it's a recognizable example where you're in that place in a sit, let's say, or maybe you're not formally meditating, you're just sitting on the couch and feeling a bit put upon by something heavy in your life, whether it's emotional or physical pain. And then you get distracted, you know, whatever it is. And then are you afflicted with that pain when you're distracted? No. Have you ever caught yourself like you, you were fantasizing about something 
and completely oblivious to the pain that was so real two minutes before, right? And it just felt like a real permanent edifice in my life, this problem, this pain. And then something changes and you're distracted, you're thinking about something. And then you come to and you realize, oh yeah, that's right, this is happening to me. And have you ever caught yourself rushing back, like to recreate the problem? Because on that egoic level, we don't like that inconsistency. It doesn't make sense to the ego that I wasn't oppressed by the pain when I was distracted. So we rush. You can catch the mind, that conditioned mind, that habit-bound mind, rushing back to recreate the tormented me who has to deal with this problem, whatever it is. You can even catch yourself like provoking it. No, are you pain still? Does this still hurt? Oh yeah, good. Just as I thought. I'm totally screwed. <laughs> but at least I'm consistent, you know. But there's something, the reason that pain disappears when we're distracted is the appearance of the pain, because it's not just pain, it's pain plus the personal me who has it, who's oppressed by it. That's really what's happening. And when we're distracted, then the supporting cause for being oppressed isn't there anymore. Because the supporting cause was this attachment, this identification, and this obsession, this fixation. Not on the pain so much, but on the idea that this pain is a problem for me. That's really where the clinging is. Of course, the physical discomfort or the emotional discomfort is part of that. But it's really the story that's the glue here. And when the mind isn't identified, isn't taking hold of that story, things really change fast. And that's like for all of us, because we all have our own weight that we carry, psychological, emotional, spiritual, discomfort, trauma, whatever it might be for each of us, the unfinished, unresolved pain in our lives. And it's really useful to, and with that sort of serene interest, to recognize how, with my interpretation, this feels so substantially about me, so substantially real for me, as if it's always that way. But now there's enough space, enough wisdom, that it doesn't, without any, ever verbalizing, it just is wondering, is this really what it appears to be? Right? I mean, and again, this can, this can be a little disconcerting, but there are moments probably when the fear of death, or the fear of climate crisis, or the fear of, uh, our country slipping into fascist, a fascist kind of place, or various kinds of injustice, injustices that plague the world, plague our society, our local community, right? And we can feel the hopelessness and the weight and the fear of all that. And then we can have a moment with our cat or a dog or a friend. And that is not there. So this is sort of what the three characteristics do for us. 
they help us live in this world, which is messy and is painful, and all of us, collectively, individually, we have this unresolved pain, and this, you know, spiritual pain, existential pain, emotional pain, personal pain from each of our lives, the continuation, you know, being the continuation of our ancestors, that involves some unresolved pain. Being part of this culture involves a lot of unresolved pain. It just comes with the territory of being human and being the continuation unavoidably, right? We are the continuation of what led to us being us, right? Like we have some of our reptilian genetic conditioning still in our wiring, let alone, you know, all the other aspects of being an animal. That's alive and well, here at least, I'm presuming with you. And then all of our centuries of violence and ignorance and greed and hatred, that all continues. We are the continuation of that. Not just the terrible stuff, of course, all the beauty and all the goodness too. And that it's the, without opening our heart to the three characteristics, which just means opening our hearts to the way it is, we will continue reacting in the way that we've all reacted in the past with greed. The Buddha says, you know, he sums it up nicely, greed, hatred, and delusion. Because that's, in a way, the default of our conditioning, of our habit energies. Now, we're not completely caught in those habit energies of greed, hatred, and delusion. And a lot of what opens the heart to the opposite, non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion, so non-greed is the not the contrived kind of generosity, but a natural generosity living for the benefit of all, including ourselves. Non-hate is that deep, resonant compassion, not wanting to add to the suffering. There's enough harm, enough suffering, not wanting to add to it, yet still finding it, if not impossible, almost impossible not to add to it. But that's such a beautiful value to not want to cause harm in any way. And non-delusion is just a acknowledgement that superficiality and denial and distraction is, in fact, a cause and a kind of violence itself. You know, when we're disconnected from our partner, not really showing up in our relationships, it's certainly the cause for harm, but it itself is a, is a kind of harming when we're sort of pretending to be there, but we're not really showing up in a conversation, not really relaxed and sensitive and being real with that moment, with whatever, whoever we're with. And it's, it's the opening to the way it is that really causes that transformation from being habit-bound with greed, hatred, and delusion to a it's really the abandoning of those habits. Then what's left, so it isn't a contrivance, it's not me trying to relate with non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion. It's what's left when wisdom 
because when we don't see the changing, unsatisfactory, and impersonal nature of all experience, then greed, hatred, and delusion is what makes sense. You know, we have sense experience, and each sense experience we have, whether it's a thought or a sight or a sound or a taste, every sense experience, there's a feeling tone, and it triggers craving. We want to get away from what's unpleasant, we want to ignore what's neutral, and we want to hold on to what's pleasant. That's just the profound conditioning, or you could say, for simplistic terms, just our animal conditioning to grasp the pleasant, to push away the unpleasant, to ignore everything else. And uh, when we start to understand the impersonal, ephemeral nature in that dukkha arises whenever there's attachment, whenever there's craving, whenever we're seeing things in personal ways, then that is naturally shed. Just like the image that sometimes uses, like if you're holding a hot pan, as soon as you realize it's really hot, you don't have to interpret, you know, I think this pan is hot, probably would be good for me to let go. It just happens when there's sensitivity. But we have to be sensitive to the way it is. Because, you know, we can hold on. I mean, the classic example is staying in a toxic relationship because we're not really clear how unhealthy it is to be, you know, in this addictive pattern or in this toxic relationship or, you know, doing, eating food that's not good for me or all the different ways that we do what's unhelpful and unhealthy. But when we're really clear and sensitive and not interpreting the experience in the habitual ways, then we really see, oh, this isn't helpful for myself or for others. And the letting go is just a natural thing that happens. Nobody has to do it. And someone might praise you for letting go, but you'll know letting go happened, but I didn't let go. Right? It's like that habit has fallen away. And we might, you know, get the blue ribbon for having given up smoking or, you know, whatever it might be. But we know that, no, no, it was just a matter, a natural process. That's that anatta, is seeing the impersonal nature. And the whole, remember, the Buddha had a, you know, when the Buddha first, uh, after having his deep insight, when he first thought, well, maybe I should share this. <laughs> you know, at, at least as the stories go, as the legends go, he hesitated like, no one's going to get this. It's so counterintuitive, this impersonal nature stuff. And he was encouraged and eventually did. And he had a tough problem. He had to clearly articulate using concepts, using words, how it is that me suffering, which looks so real and personal, like when we're suffering, right? How that is just a natural process, empty of self. And then he had to describe how awakening and, and real freedom, real 
release from all that oppresses us humans, how that, because that also feels very personal when we experience some release from our oppressive states, right? It feels like, dear God, I'm free. And we, and we want to start a religion or something, or a Buddhist <laughs> meditation center. Because it, it feels like, like when we have a mystical or a deep experience, it, we immediately, because of the latent habits, we interpret the profundity of that experience as happening to me. Right? That's just the habits, the way the habits work. So we had to describe how awakening was an impersonal process and how repeated cycles of suffering was an impersonal process. So that we people in training can train ourselves to see, oh, here it is, Mark is suffering, but in a way we're observing, I'm kind of pointing to it out there, but it's really right here, right? I'm observing myself, oh, I'm a suffering being. You know, I'm in an argument with my partner, I'm feeling lonely or whatever it is, and I'm identified with that, and it feels very much me, but now I have this new map from the Buddha where I can look at this subjective experience, this very personal, seemingly personal experience of me suffering, but with new eyes, fresh eyes. Oh, this is what uh, codependent arising or codependent arising um, that teaching, paticca samuppada is the Pali phrase, for how it is in a very natural, lawful way that suffering arises. So there's sensitivity, you know, there's consciousness and this uh, mind and form, which is just the beginning, you know, and then we have sense experience endlessly, ceaselessly, Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, thoughts, all of that sense experience is impinging on our sensitivity constantly. We call that sense contact. With every contact, the mind perceives it, interprets it. There's a feeling there. And a strong habit, as I just said, is to, for that to trigger craving. Craving to hold what's pleasant, hold on to it, to get rid of what's unpleasant to ignore the neutral. And so, if there is craving, then we do something about that craving. That's called grasping. So craving is the desire with attachment. Oh, I really want. And then when I do something about that, I start laying down impressions, the grasping, that I become the person who's conditioned my heart by doing something about my desires to get rid of, to get... That gets laid down. That's what karma is. It's the fruit of those intentions. When we act on our likes and our dislikes, we become the person who's acted on our likes and dislikes. And that leaves an impression. We've, in a sense, as the Buddha described it, taken birth as somebody who's uh, striven to have this or to get rid of that. Strove? Striven? I'm not sure what it is. (laughs) One of those, maybe. <laughs> and then that affects the mind. So then there's this latent ignorance, this underlying conditioning of the mind. So consciousness has this unfinished business. So there is this 
name and form are what we call reality, what we're experiencing here, constantly impinged upon by sense experience. But it's, it has this unfinished business because of the suffering born of craving, grasping, becoming. Taking birth as somebody who is pursuing happiness through attachment. Try to get what I want, try to get rid of what I don't want. So that's that lawful process, impersonal process. And then when we cultivate the stability of awareness, we begin to see that. We begin to observe Mark or each of us. We observe ourselves and we observe each other too. We observe this, like our partner, our friends, ourselves, our cats, our dogs, our neighbors, our colleagues at work. We start observing everything as a natural process, changing, flowing, and there's something affecting the natural process. And that something is what in Buddhism we call wrong view, self-view or just those four distortions that I've mentioned a number of times since we started talking about that. Taking what's impermanent to be permanent, taking what is not actually satisfying for me, for a self, as being satisfying for me, taking what is impersonal to be personal, and taking what is neither ugly nor beautiful to be, you know, one of those two things. Things are just what they are. When we say something's beautiful, it's really from our personal perspective. You know how it is, like you see something you've really wanted, whatever it is for each of us. Some of you will be like the new electric chainsaws. <laughs> Need one of those. I have one, by the way, <laughs> in my little yard. But You know, for other people, it will be, a, you know, whatever. Somebody just told me that they're... I think it was her aunt or maybe a, anyway, a senior relative in their family really wanted them to have a chafing dish, you know, sort of an heirloom for the family, you know, and I, I don't know, I think the person loved it just because the, maybe it was the grandmother really wanted them to have it, uh, but anyway, you, you know how it is, so, but it's interesting when we look at it with our normal eyes, it's like, yeah, that will be a cause for my happiness. But it's just like, almost like a soft gaze and we realize it's just what it is. You know, it's just going to be what it is. And maybe there'll be some pleasure associated, but there'll also be some tension. Maybe someone will steal my electric chainsaw. <laughs> you know, or a friend of mine who got the same one I just drove back with uh, from the retreat center was saying how they had the same one and somehow there's a little crack and it's dripping oil and they're really upset. <laughs> So now it's like, oh no. (laughs) So that can creep in, you know. But when we see the whole picture that whatever it is that has our fancy, we realize in no way is there a somebody who can grasp it in a meaningful way, although we try. We can't really extract any nutriment from anything. And the corollary of that, the scary stuff can't really harm us in the way they think we think they'll harm us. Even something scary like death. 
We think death is an enemy to me, but we haven't really seen the whole picture enough to really um, believe that as the final truth. We don't really know if that's true, but we just go with it because of our programming. Death is bad, pain is bad, electric chainsaw is good, or whatever. You know, and all the other stuff doesn't matter because it's neutral. It's not something I care about. But you'll see that it's neither good nor bad. It's just something being known. And that's that profound, that opening to that profound equanimity is liberating. And it doesn't keep us from having electric chainsaws or chafing dishes or whatever. Or a beautiful cabin or being the best minimalist in the country, or whatever, you know, has your fancy. Oh yeah, go for it. But don't expect it to make you happy, and don't expect it to make you unhappy. So you see how that really frees up our participation in our life to be all about generosity and non-harming? Because all of a sudden there isn't a neurotic one who has to navigate my likes and dislikes in order to get someplace called satisfaction. I mean, that's a heavy trip. And especially as we get older and it's harder to satisfy ourselves, we've had enough meals and we begin, it starts to creep in like, maybe food's not going to do it for me. <laughs> well, let's go one more restaurant. Check it out. That might, that might be the ticket. You know. Or one more this or one more that. And, you know, we kind of discover, you know, taking care of somebody, being nice, is so much more satisfying than finding a nice restaurant. And and cultivating non-harming, like getting really, not because we're tight, not because we're afraid of being bad, but because it's really nice to, like, take care of things where we don't we reduce harm for ourselves and for others. I mean, just a relatively silly example, but to get rid of your boulevard and put a pollinating garden so that the bees and the bugs and the other creatures have some habitat, and the birds and all the things that depend on, the, you know, and just that level of non-harming and generosity can provide so much more satisfaction than things we might think will really you know, be the ticket. Or really being there for our elders when they need us. And just playing checkers or just showing up and making soup or whatever it might be. I mention this sometimes. Um, my parents have been dead for a while, but that still resonates in my heart. Not that I was the perfect son by any stretch. I wasn't. But I did my best, you know, to kind of be available. And same with uh, my siblings. And uh, for us, you know, it feels that that's like a, a resonant satisfaction that I didn't neglect. I'm so grateful. I never thought I wanted to move back to Minneapolis, but some 32 years ago I did, you know. And uh, it's like anywhere but Minneapolis. And I met my spouse. And they had reasons to move to Minneapolis. And I said, okay, I guess, guess it's going to be this way. 
You know, but it was so good to be around my parents as they aged. I'm so happy that it turned out that way. And get this and all that came from that. So that's, that's like an interesting way to see how this works, opening to these three characteristics, really sets in motion change we cannot imagine. All these synchronistic things. Tricycle Magazine just, uh, they're online, I get their little emails, and they had an article from a Tibetan teacher, Choki Nima Rinpoche, this is from 2018, but they just linked to it today, I think, or yesterday, I forget, recently. And the article is titled, The Secret Strength of Sadness. But he's really talking about these three characteristics, and I just want to read the opening two paragraphs. So it's, I think, a nice just a way of talking about how this opening is so transformative. He writes, What are the experiences that the teachings of the Buddha are founded on? And he says this thing that's really provocative. He says, they are sadness, love, and openness. Now, you might have guessed openness and love, but you may not have guessed sadness. right? But there's something about opening to the three characteristics that evokes a deep, deep grieving. Because we are letting go of something. It's ignorance, but that's what the heart knows. And when we open to the three characteristics, we have to let go of our wrong ideas about everything. We're opening to a new world. I know it sounds a little bit dramatic to say it that way, but it really is a change. When we go from depending on our personal view of things to opening to something that's there when we abandon our personal view of things. So he writes, although they appear to be quite different, sadness and openness are in fact intimately connected. The profound sadness that overwhelms us when we understand the impermanent nature of all phenomena opens us up to the world around us. We open our hearts and begin to notice our fellow beings. We see how we all must face the hardship of life. We understand the fleeting nature of our joys and we become aware of how much worry, pain, and suffering we all go through in our lives. In this way, we realize that we all share similar painful experiences. Knowing what others go through and feel, we cannot help but sympathize with them, and we wish to help and protect our fellow beings, and the wish to help and protect our fellow beings naturally wells up in us. This wish to help and protect arises from love. And the more we open our eyes to others, suffering and delusion, the stronger our love becomes. Love clears the mind of the thick fog of desire, anger, and ignorance. That's the greed, hatred, and delusion I was talking about. And he writes, Love is like the sun that burns through the fog, dissolving it, until only vast openness and clarity remain. When nothing but boundless openness and lucidity remain, we come face to face with the basic nature of all phenomena beyond concepts. And this is what we mean by the way it is, seeing things as the way they are. That's the way to freedom, that's the way to a greater responsivity in our lives, like with learning how to show up 
and it's in skillful ways. We can't really figure out like how to be a good partner or how to be a good citizen, a good activist, a good parent. But we can learn by opening to our own experience, we can learn how to abandon, to weaken those tendencies to greed, hatred, and delusion. And then all that's left is that nimble, creative, appropriate, skillful responsivity. But it's not that you're trying to do it. It's like you'll see, oh, wow, I handled that pretty well. I'm so grateful I didn't mess up that sticky place that I was in the middle of. But it's not like you arrogantly think, I got this. It's it's just like if you observed another person handling a sticky situation with a lot of grace and skill, you would be impressed and you would... You would be grateful just to have witnessed it. You have that same attitude when you cover, handle things well in your life. Because you have that impersonal, like it wasn't personal. It was great what I just said or did or didn't do, but it wasn't personal. It was just nature being nature. But it's nature that isn't gummed up with the wrong view, the self-view, the self-centered view. So it's like an open question for each of us, like, who am I? What is this me-ness, you know, this body-mind, without the wrong view, without the self-centered view, without the fixation on permanence and satisfaction, like, I can get it, if only I get rid of this or get that. What does this life look like, feel like, when the mind abandons that self-view? And that's our experiment, right? That's what we're practicing. And we have all day. It's not just when we're sitting. Because mostly the learning comes, we see the gumminess, the stickiness of self-view. And we go, and it, it just becomes so ringingly clear, oh, this is not the way. <laughs> it's like me handling this situation with that strongly established self-view makes being skillful next to impossible. And just seeing that is the start. Don't try to get rid of that, because that would just be more self-view. Being forgiving of self-view, being intimate with self-view, really getting closer and closer to how it gums everything up is the way to loosen it. It's like that hot pan. Self-view, self-centered view, is released when self-view is seen as being a dead weight in the moment. Then letting go happens. Is that pleasant? No. (laughs) You know, when we see ourselves living our life and we highlight attachment because we have understood it to be good spiritual work, it's unpleasant to see all the little and big ways we're attached and clinging and tight and afraid and needy, but that's what we want to highlight. Not with judgment, not with taking it personal. personally, we're seeing it as a conditional response, meaning when the mind is conditioned this way, of course you're going to take it personally. Of course you're going to perceive the situation in this way. This person doesn't get me, they don't love me, or whatever. Of course, of course, of course. So that's the forgiveness. And then we just see, feel the weight of that. 
and then let, then it starts to open up and starts to loosen up. And we see what's beyond the mind, the mind's identification or the mind's clinging, being entrapped in that wrong view. We can't think our way to wise view, to not self-view. It isn't something that we figure out intellectually. It's something that's worn down by seeing the effects, the natural lawful effects of wrong view. And we can see it in ourselves. And as this uh, Tibetan uh, Rinpoche says, you know, we see it in others. And that breaks our heart open into compassion, not to judgment. I mean, sometimes, but then it's not healthy. But we know it's healthy when we start to care about everything and everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.